when we, when we consider the setting, the torturous death of Jesus on the cross had brought an end to his physical suffering. But his followers, gut-wrenching, emotional suffering continued. It had only started, basically. Uh, their, their emotional and psychological uh, uh, suffering had just begun uh, with, the, with the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, for three terrifying, dreadful, horrific days, those followers grappled unsuccessfully trying to make some kind of sense out of the brutal death of their Savior, seeking any kind of insights that could reconcile their expectations to the Jesus that they once knew and walked with and moved with and fellowshiped with. And uh, then the two Marys, Mary, two Marys came to the tomb uh, to anoint his body. Let's look at the question then on page 57 of your study guide. When were you excited to experience something firsthand? Can you think of, remember, an experience in your life when you were excited about uh, experiencing something firsthand? First plane ride. First plane ride, okay. Uh, how was it? Exhilarating. Exhilarating. Wasn't frightening. No. Okay, good. I was on the plane one time, and a little boy was on going on the plane with his mother, and from the, from the terminal, he was crying, "I won't go on no plane! I won't go on no plane!" And he cried like that the whole flight oh until the plane landed. When he got on the plane, he still cried, "I won't go on no plane." <laughs> Anybody else? Uh, I, the first time I saw snow. Okay. I, I was going over to Carol, and I see this white thing, and so well, I found her, I said, what's that? He said, how would you ever see the snow? I said, no. He said, that's not. I said, oh, that's <laughs> a lot of people still open for that. So it's normally when there's something new, right? When there's something new or something for the first time, something beneficial, something that you've hoped for, and you finally realize it. And uh, we've all had those experiences at one time or another. Look at the point at the top of page 58. What does it say? Jesus is alive, and we can live forever. You believe that? Yes. yes. Amen. He is alive. There are many people who are worshiping uh, prophets and so-called saviors, and their bones are some in some graveyard somewhere. But we can rejoice because Jesus is alive. Okay. Look at the Bible meets life section on page fifty-eight. Let's have someone read that, please. Nothing is quite the same as seeing something majestic in person. Maybe it was the Grand Canyon, the Statue of Liberty on the Eiffel Tower. You'd seen photographs, but when you visited in person, wow, it was a whole different experience. Pictures didn't do it justice. Similarly, a friend can talk nonstop about how thrilling it is to see, ride a certain roller coaster, or see a particular inspiring movie. However, it's a whole different experience when you strap on the skis, step onto the ride, or sit in the darkened theater yourself. We can get caught up in another person's enthusiasm, but it's totally different when the experience is our own. The most incredible moment in the Bible, no, in all of history, was the moment Jesus came back to life. 
we can read of those who saw Jesus alive, and we can marvel at the proof of this event. But our knowledge doesn't have to stop stop there. Wouldn't it be great to know firsthand that Jesus is alive? Amen. And so if I were to say to you, Christ is risen, what would you say? He's alive. Right, he's alive. He's risen indeed. I sometimes I was I said I was saying to myself, who do people say now? I what would people do? What would they say? What would they think? Okay, let's look at the passage. What does the Bible say? Um, could we have someone read the first eight verses of the passage on page 59? Matthew chapter 28, verse 1 to 7. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake, because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his robe was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken from fear of him that they became like dead men. But the angel told the women, Don't be afraid, because I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been resurrected, just as he said. Come see the place where he lives. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead. In fact, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Okay. All right, the Gospel of Matthew uh, mentions Mary Magdalene and the other Mary who were present, and they were, they were at the crucifixion also. And so we see them here at the burial, according to Matthew chapter 27 and verse 56 and also 61, uh, they were there on both occasions. So these two women kind of hung out together and uh, they, were, they, were, they were serving Jesus during his ministry. They were there when, they were, when he was crucified and so now we see them showing up at the tomb. And uh, they were the ones who first returned to the tomb. Nobody else came to the tomb before them. They were the first to show up. Uh, the other Mary was the mother of James and Joseph. Matthew states that the women had come in order to view the tomb. You know whenever someone dies and they bury them? I pass Lakeview, Lakeview uh, Cemetery all the time, back and forth from work. And there's hardly an occasion I pass it, there's not someone there. They're looking at someone's tomb, someone's gravestone. You know, and so we have an occasion here where these women perhaps did the same thing. They had a loved one who had passed away, and they went back. I have a sister-in-law who had a daughter died, and religiously they go to that cemetery every single week, every week, just to look at the tomb. I mean, the body's not there because the child is gone to be with the Lord. But people do that. They go to the cemetery, and they even talk to them. I don't know who they're talking to, but they talk. Uh, all right? Uh, so Mary, Mary, the two Marys showed up at the tomb, uh, uh, to do something similar, I guess. Matthew is the only gospel writer who mentions the earthquake. The other three gospel writers don't mention an earthquake. He's the only one that mentions it. And this powerful force was the result of the angel of the Lord. He came and uh, he opened the tomb, not for Jesus to get out. 
What did he open the door for? What did he open about the stone for? <laughs> for the two Marys to go in. Right. You know, they couldn't go in if the stone had been still there over the tomb. And so they wanted to see, they wanted to see their loved one. And uh, notice the description of the angel's appearance. Uh, what does the verse say? He was like, brilliant like, like lightning. Lightning, bright. Radiant, bright. They'd never seen anything like this. And he showed up like a bolt of lightning. His robe was as white as snow. Uh, and the angel represented... He came and he represented the power of Almighty God. Just his appearance and what he did represented the power of God Almighty. Only the Gospel of Matthew mentions that the angel was also sitting on the stone. Uh, the other Gospels don't mention that. Uh, and it's kind of ironic. He rolled the stone away. He could have just rolled it away and went back to heaven. He rolled the stone away and he sat on it. You know, that's kind of... God always has the last laugh, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the guards... What happened to the guards? They fainted, right? The Bible says they were they felt like they were like dead men, paralyzed. They fainted. Okay, these grown, strapping soldiers who gone who had gone through many battles, they their knees buckled and they fainted. And the word angel means messenger. Of course, we know that, right? Because we have seen many occasions where God sent these angel angelic beings uh, to Mary and to Daniel and many others in the scripture. And so these are messengers who came from heaven uh, as they did uh, to share with Mary when uh, the Lord Jesus Christ was supposed to come into the world as a carnate being. And the earthquake was so powerful uh, that it shook everything around it, as earthquakes normally do. Okay, uh, look at question two on your sheet. What does it say? Why does it really matter that Jesus physically rose from the dead? What would have happened? What would our, our life and our hopes of all eternity be if Jesus Christ had not risen from the dead? Hmm? Fruitless. Fruitless? What would our lives be like? What, what would we be living for? No salvation, no hope. We would be like all those other people who have had individuals come and call themselves a savior or a lord and they died and that was the end of it. Okay, their bones are buried in some cemetery somewhere and there is no hope beyond the grave. For us, there is a hope beyond the grave. Because Jesus, the Bible says, he's the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first to be resurrected and never to die again. Now, there were some people who were resurrected, who were raised from the dead, but they died again, right? Who were they? Lazarus is one. All right? There were some others, too. Uh, remember those persons who, uh, uh, the Bible tells us that when this earthquake occurred, there were graves, that people that came out of the graves and walked around. Think they still live in? They died again. Okay, when the veil of the temple was rent and the graves were open and people came out, boy, imagine the people's relatives when they saw their loved ones again. They were probably ecstatic. But those people died again. Okay, so they died twice. But for us who know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and personal Savior, we serve a Savior who was dead but is alive 
and he's alive forevermore. Look at the uh, passage on page 60. In fact, let's have someone read that. That passage on Joe Lewis. Boxer Joe Lewis. Let's have someone read that. Boxer Joe Lewis had a spotless record of 27.0 going on into his fight with the German Mark Smelly. Everyone expected Lewis to win, but he didn't. Twelve rounds into a 15-round bout, Smelling knocked Lewis to the mat. The hero had fallen. This was not just a fight between men. This was in 1936 when Nazism was at its height and Germany was developing into the picture of evil. The fight had been promoted as a battle between democracy and fascism, right and wrong, good versus evil, and it appeared evil had won, but the story wasn't over. Two years later, a second fight was scheduled between Lewis and Schmeling. Lewis came out swinging. In just under a minute, Schmeling went down for the third and final time. Lewis had won the match with a knockout. The one who was considered the enemy, the one who had once been hailed as the victor, discovered he had lost. Okay, go on. Go on? Yeah. On the Sunday after his crucifixion and death, Jesus Christ did what no one else has ever done. He got up. Jesus Christ delivered death as deciding blow. His resurrection places him in a class by himself. He is the risen Lord. And because of that, he is the only one through whom salvation can be granted. After all, you cannot place living faith in a dead savior. If the resurrection didn't matter, then the stone would have stayed right where it had been placed. But we see in Matthew 28 that the angel of the Lord rolled the stone away. The angel didn't roll it away so Jesus could get out. Jesus had already risen. No, the angel of the Lord rolled the stone away to show the tomb was empty. God wanted everyone to see that evil had lost his victory because Jesus had defeated the grave. Amen. Amen. Okay, so notice the power of God says on that Sunday after the after his crucifixion and death, Jesus Christ did what no one else has ever done. No one else has ever done what he did. Jesus Christ delivered death its deciding blow. And that's why that hymn writer could write, O grave, where is thy victory? His resurrection places him in a class by himself. Wouldn't you like to be in that class? People are excited when they're in a class by themselves. Okay, no competition. They stand out. And Jesus is in the class by himself. He is the risen Lord. And because of that, he is the only one through whom salvation can be granted. The Bible says there's, there's no other name under heaven whereby one can be saved other than the name of Jesus. And yet there are still people who are following other individuals because those individuals claim that they can do for them what no one else can. And because... Uh, because of that, he is the only one through whom salvation can be granted. After all, you cannot place living faith in what? Dead a dead Savior. And of course, there are people who are still doing that today. Question number three, page 60. What does it say? In what ways did Jesus' resurrection impact in history? Okay, what ways do you think the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ impacted history? Well, it's a minor way, but we base all time on this life, B.C. and A.D. 
exactly. It's split history in two. We celebrate A.D. and B.C. Okay, now even those who don't believe in Jesus, they have to acknowledge that. There's no way around that. Every single day. Okay, and so God always has the last laugh. Okay, what else? He changed the apostles' whole attitude. The whole outlook on life has changed. And he's done that for many people today. People look on, on life from a different perspective because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it sets Christianity apart from all other religions because it has a leader who was dead but is alive and he's alive forevermore. And one day we're going to see him. We're going to live with him. We're going to be able to look at those wounds that he bore for us. And you know, the Bible tells us that there are going to be tears in heaven. Only for a little while though. Not forever. Okay, because I believe that a lot of people when they get to heaven and they see Jesus for the first time, you know, we, we, we hear a lot about things that happen and we don't realize it happened until we actually witness it for ourselves. And then the reality hits us. And that's where the tears, I believe, is going to come in heaven. When we get to heaven and we see Jesus for the first time, and we, we actually see the nail prints in his hand and the scars on his brow, and boy, I tell you, there's going to be some weeping and wailing. It's going to be like somebody died. <laughs> because people are going to realize for the first time that there are a lot of things that they wish they had done in their lives if they had the realization that Jesus had done for them what he did. But all their lives they live without thinking about it. And when they get there for the first time and they see with their own eyes, then they're going to fully accept what has been done. And so that's one of the impacts that the resurrection is going to have. Uh, it ain't come yet, it's coming. Okay, what else? In what ways has the resurrection impacted history? Other than A.D., B.C., people not realizing that Jesus really died for them. What about the Jews? Remember them? They still haven't accepted it yet. But it's coming. It's coming. Okay, look at, uh, let's have some read verses 8 and 9 of Matthew 28, 8 to 10. We'll see the moment that the two Marys encountered the risen Christ in verses 8 and 9, verses 8 through 10. Matthew 28, verses 8 to 10. Okay. Uh, verse eight. So departing quickly. They were excited. They were full of joy. The Bible says they had uh, they had fear, but they had great joy, and they ran. They took off. What did we say? They break off running. Okay. In the first century Jewish in the first century Jewish culture. The testimony of women was not really considered to be credible. In other words, people never really listened to what women said. You know, they, you know, brushed them off. Okay, and uh, 
And so it was not it was not even admissible in a court of law. In other words, a woman couldn't go to court and give testimony and it'd be believable. The judge never accepted it. It was not admissible in court. Okay, and so what God did something unique here. Uh, God used these women to be the first evangelist, in a sense, proclaiming the good news. See, God's ways are not our ways. Neither are his thoughts our thoughts, the prophet Isaiah says. And so God does something that nobody else ever did, and that was not acceptable during the time. Uh, but God is always right. God used these women to be the first evangelists. The same women who went to the tomb with grief and tremendous anxiety left quickly from the tomb in obedience to the angel's command. They didn't doubt what the angel said. They fully believed what he said. The angel's command with fear and with great joy they took off and they went to do exactly what the angel told them to do. Fear and joy sounds like an unusual combination. Uh, when we look at the passage, uh, it says they departed from the tomb with great fear and great joy. How could you put those two together? How could you have great fear and great joy at the same time? Okay, but that's what it says. Okay, fear and great and joy, it's an unusual combination. We don't normally experience both at the same time. But the presence is both understandable. These women had just lived through an earthquake, seen a radiant angel, and heard the news that Jesus had resurrected from the dead. Now, when you have that kind of a combination of good news and bad news, you know, what else can you experience but great fear and great joy? It's actually happened. Jesus has risen from the dead. And so these women took a while. Mary and Magdalene and the other Mary ran to tell the disciples about their joyous discovery. Jesus met them. What a surprise. Okay. God compounded their fear and joy with the reality that Jesus is alive. They ran into him. Okay. The greeting Jesus offered, good morning, means rejoice. It emphasized the nature of his appearance. The word conveys joyfulness. It is a kind of cherry greeting that reverses the circumstances that they were previously in, found themselves in. The two Marys responded by coming near and they knelt down, they took hold of Jesus' feet and they worshiped him. And the act of taking hold of Jesus' feet was one of a great submission and homage and worship. It was an indication to Matthew's readers that Jesus was physically present before these two women. They could handle him. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a spirit. He wasn't an invisible, inanimate object. He was a living, breathing human being. The Jesus that they had known before, the Jesus that they had served, the Jesus that they had walked with, the Jesus that they had ministered to, it was him. And then when we look at verse 10, what does verse 10 say? Then Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. And so Jesus is saying, listen, this is real. You know, what the angel told you is real. I'm here. This is me. Live and in living color. Now I want you to go and tell the disciples. Jesus repeated the same words that the angels had said to the women. Go and tell the disciples. Tell these witnesses of mine. 
And he said to them, do not be afraid. He says, go, let's make an appointment. Tell the disciples to go to Jerusalem and I'll meet them there. And all of them can see me live in a living color. On other occasions before his death, Jesus had addressed his followers with the same words of assurance. Be not afraid. Remember that? Over and over again in his ministry, when they encountered Jesus in an unusual encounter, Jesus would often calm their spirits and fears by telling them, don't be afraid. You see, he knows how often and how easily it is for human beings to become fearful. The least little thing will frighten us sometimes. You know, you're in your own house, you know that all the doors are locked, but you hear a sound. And you're afraid, right? It's your house. You've got the keys. You know you lock the door, right? But you're afraid. The least little thing frightens us. And so Jesus is quite aware of how fearful, how easy it is for us to become fearful. In Jesus' presence, we will feel his grace fully. And have a sense of being before someone who loves us more than we can ever imagine. And that's what these women experience. Do not be afraid. Our words that invite us invite trust and joy. And that's what these women encountered. We again encourage, we, we, gain, we gain courage to face whatever circumstances come our way by trusting the Savior. Jesus also referred to his disciples as my brothers. Notice that? Verse 10? Yes. This is the first time Jesus had referred to those who were his disciples as his brothers. Never used that term before. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, uh, verses uh, 46 uh, to verse 50. Someone read those verses, please. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 to 50. While he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without desire to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, my mother and thy brethren stand without desire to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand to one his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whatsoever shall do the will of my for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, so he had used this term because they were familiar with it. He, he wanted them to, to understand that this was the same Jesus that had walked with them, that had fellowship with them. He had called them his brother before, his brothers before, and now he's using that same term again to assure them that this is who he is, who he said he's, he, he is. And then in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, he uses the same term again. Read verse 40 of chapter 25, Matthew. What does it say? Okay, so he's using that term again. And so it's a, a term of familiarity uh, here in this occasion of great joy and great fear. Uh, there was timidity in the backs of the minds of their people because remember when Jesus had been crucified, everybody thought that was the end. He was gone. He was like all the other fellows who had came and claimed to be who they were. 
who they weren't. And uh, they never came back. And so in this time of great joy and great fear, Jesus wanted to reassure them with a term that he had used on many occasions before. My brothers, uh, my brothers and sisters. However, it's an interesting phrase in the light of the total failure of the disciples. Okay, he was referred to as their brothers, but they had kind of given up uh, after the resurrection, after uh, the, the crucifixion rather. These are the same disciples who earlier fled in fear from the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that? When the soldiers came marching in, all of them took off. They all scattered in all different directions. We are sometimes rather hard on Peter, aren't we? We get hard on Peter and we condemn him and we criticize him uh, for denying Jesus. But at least he had the courage to follow Jesus after his arrest. Many other others didn't. Remember, Peter was the only one who followed Jesus after the arrest. Remember in the garden when some of the people recognized him? And they said, you, you look like one of them. No, 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 it wasn't me. That was because he continued to follow. He was the only one. All the rest had scattered. And he denied Jesus three times, of course, in fulfillment of what Jesus said he would do. And so that was a fulfillment of scripture. But we often get hard on Peter, but remember Peter was the one who followed after the arrest. That Jesus would look forward to a union with his brothers, emphasize his mercy and his grace. Just as Jesus predicted that his disciples would flee from his side, so too he predicted that they would be gathered together in Galilee. And we see that prediction in chapter 26 of Matthew. Jesus also accepts his disciples that that they were there when he needed them to be. When he said, tell them to get together in Galilee and I'll meet them there. And he expected that they would be there and they were. And so Jesus sent the women to tell these brothers of his next appointment with them. They were to meet in Galilee, the place they first met Jesus and began their journey with him. A place of familiarity. It was where Jesus first gathered with his disciples and he says, you know what, let's get together in that same place where we met the first time. And we often do that, don't we? Whenever you had a special occasion with someone at a special place and uh, something unique is happening, you want to get together in that same place. Jesus did the same thing. Okay, uh, let's look at uh, page uh, 61 on your guide. When the disciples encountered Jesus after his resurrection, their first impulse was to worship him. The same should be true of us. Read the beginning of Psalm 95 as an act of worship, then express your own feelings about Jesus in the space provided. Okay, see that space there? You can write your expressions in that space. Okay, that's an assignment. You don't have to do that right now. But let's look at the Psalm. Someone read Psalm verse 95, 1 to 6. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of your salvation. Let us end his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are his hands, and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his, he made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, 
there is worship and bow down. There is kneel before the Lord our Maker. Okay, that's a powerful psalm, and it has a lot in there. It's pregnant with truth and reality, and uh, it's something that you can meditate upon, and that's the whole idea of it. Meditate upon it, and as a result of it, express your worship. Question number four, page 63. Why is worship still the appropriate response to the resurrection? Why? Is there something else we can do other than worship? Can we think about the resurrection? It gives you testimony when you remember it and you tell people about it. Okay, it gives you testimony. It's reason for testimony. Is there any other action that we can do other than worship in light of the resurrection? None, 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 none. Look at what the women did. What did they do? The Bible says they knelt down, they took hold of his feet, and they did what? Worship. Worship is the only appropriate response that we can give to the resurrection. There's nothing else. Okay, we worship him as the Lord of Lords, as the King of Kings, as the resurrected Savior. And so that's the only praiseworthy response of such an act. Okay, let's look then at uh, page 63. Page 63. We've got some points here. Not only did the empty tomb point to Jesus' resurrection, but the eyewitnesses did as well. For they tell us that after the women encountered Jesus, who told them Jesus had risen, they ran to tell his disciples. The disciples also went to see the resurrected Jesus. And they had no doubt whatsoever that he is alive. No evidence of their conviction. Need evidence of their conviction? That's a question. Look at their lives. When Jesus was arrested in the garden, his disciples scattered in fear. They had boasted of their allegiance to him. The one they thought was to be their ruler and king. We have some passages there as well. Matthew chapter 26, uh, verse 33 to 35. Peter declared, even, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Remember that statement? <laughs> Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter. This very night before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. Peter insisted. No, Peter insisted. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same. But were they there when Jesus was arrested? They all scattered, right? When the going gets tough, however, they all abandoned him. They just couldn't see how dying was any way to become a king. They couldn't imagine. They just couldn't, they just couldn't figure that out. But then came Sunday. The Sunday Jesus rose from the dead made all the difference in the world. As a matter of fact, it made all the difference for, for the world. Sunday was when the disciples' eyes were opened and they learned death couldn't contain Jesus. Over the next 40 days, Jesus appeared to the disciples and many others, up to 500 people at one time, in various settings. 
We can be assured of this because history validates this truth with how the disciples lived and died. Prior to seeing Jesus alive, his disciples trembled, ran away, and hid. Yet after they witnessed the resurrection, Lord, the resurrected Lord, they were filled with his Holy Spirit. They boldly followed him and willingly drank of the cup that was his, speaking of the way that they themselves died. James, one of the two, who said he was willing to drink the cup when asked by Jesus, was the first of the twelve apostles to die for his belief in the resurrected Jesus. The Jews in power despised men like James who were unrelenting in their claim that Christ had risen from the dead. So King Herod, in an attempt to please the Jews, killed James with a sword. Judas Iscariot, of course, died by his own hand soon after betraying Jesus to the authorities for 30 pieces of silver. All of the other original apostles except John were killed because of their commitment to Jesus. While we have more historical evidence of the martyrdom of some of the apostles than, than others, history records in some form or fashion that all died a martyr's death except for John, who was exiled to the island of Patmos. In short, each of the apostles died for teaching and proclaiming Jesus Christ as the resurrected living Savior. Now remember that. The point is, the reason why they died is because they proclaimed him as the resurrected living Savior. Nobody believed that he would ever rise from the dead. Now, I understand people even today will go to great lengths for high-minded notions or ideals. But think of it. Who would knowingly and willingly die for a lie? Know anybody? No. The disciples died for an undeniable truth. They saw Jesus alive after he had been crucified and buried. And because of what they had seen, they knew death would not be an end for them. Either Jesus had come to give eternal life, that was the confident hope in which they died. And it was the same confident hope in which we are to live today. Jesus is alive. He's not dead. And so the points that uh, the article raises for us to consider is the disciples were terrified before Jesus' crucifixion. Point number one. Point number two, the disciples witnessed Jesus after his resurrection. And point number three, the disciples were willing to die because of what they had seen. And they all, except John, they all did. They were willing to die for the resurrected living Savior, and they did. Look at question 5, page 63. What does it say? Okay, how will the resurrection impact your life in the days to come? Now that's for you to answer. Okay, when we think about and meditate upon the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the question is, how will it impact your life in the days to come? Will how you live change because of the reality and another reminder of the reality of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? It should serve as a reminder to be more focused in living 
not for self, but for the one who died for you. Look at the point again. What does the point say? Jesus is alive and we can live forever, right? Look at page 64. Section that says live it out as we close. What does it say? What's the first point? Seek peace. Too many people allow the fear of the future to hold them back. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you embrace the peace that comes with eternal life through Jesus Christ. Okay? Seek peace. And remember the Bible says about peace? Seek peace and pursue it. Okay? So that's one action we can take uh, in response to the hope of Jesus' resurrection. What's the, what's the other one? Celebrate what? What does it say? It remains the best news anyone can hear. Can you think of any other good news? Better than that? Best news. Therefore, make a concerted effort to celebrate that miracle this week. As you go out throughout the course of this week, give yourself permission to feel the joy that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was intended to give us. The next point. Pray it forward. Pay it forward. Someone told you about the gift of eternal life available in Christ. Do the same for someone else by explaining how they can have a future hope in Christ. Another assignment for the course of the week. Okay, good time to do it. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is a good reminder that we can express the hope for others that they don't have. Remember, many people are looking for hope. Remember the aunt lady who drove off to the dock with her two children, committed suicide and took the two children with her? She needed that kind of hope. Nobody gave it to her. You may run into a person this week who needs that very same kind of hope. And so if you take this advice, you can give them that hope. You can give them something even better than that. You can give them the hope because you can give them the opportunity to receive the gift of eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the point is, pay it forward. Again on page 64. The message of Easter is that you and I have the promise of eternal life. We will live forever and love forever. Such good news shall affect you, should affect what you do each and every single day. It should. And so, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. <laughs>